I feel like some of the stuff that has come out during our worship this morning as well, it's just clear God's speaking and, and, and doing work in people's hearts this morning. And um, I don't want to miss that. And I, I think it will, it will come out a bit in what I'm saying. I think there'll be some things here that God will, will touch on things. So um, I'd just like to start by praying, really, and just, uh, just invite God to continue to do what he's already began. And just be open to that this morning. It's, it's not that weird that God, who we believe in and know is real, and his Holy Spirit is here with us, that he does actually work in this way, that he does speak to us, and we see coincidence after coincidence. And when you're a Christian, you recognize that as actually, though, that's God at work um, to the world. It's, well, it's just a load of coincidences. But actually, when you keep seeing, you think, hang on a minute, maybe God's actually speaking this morning. So I just say that to encourage you, because we are naturally cynical. And, and so I just want you to know that he is here. And he is at work in our hearts, and he'll be speaking to you right now. So, Heavenly Father, I just I want to invite you again. Lord, you're already here, but we welcome you because we love you. And we long to hear from you. We long to, um, to know your will for our lives. Lord, we long to know more intimately how much you love us. Lord, my prayer this morning for all of us here is that, that the knowledge that we have, Lord, which is, is more than knowledge, it's experience of your love as well, but... Lord, that it goes deeper this morning, that we understand that, Lord, as it says, in your, as you said in your word, that as the Father has loved you, Jesus, so you have loved us. Lord, help us to comprehend how much the Father loves the Son, and for then us to receive that same level of love from Jesus this morning. Lord, will you speak into people's hearts? Lord, will they be reassured that you really do care? Lord, that you have gone after every single one of us. And so I just feel that on my heart this morning, Lord, that you're just drawing people to yourself this morning, and Lord, that, that there'll be no lost sheep by the end of this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 There's a few flies around here, aren't there? I think that, um, that dead rat that we... Oh, oh, look at that. There you go. Um, sorry, for those of you that are listening online, I clearly swatted the fly midair uh, with a backhand slap. Um, and on that note... We're going to get into Matthew chapter 18. I'm just going to read the Bible. It's a good place to go now. (laughs) The greatest in the kingdom of heaven, it begins. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, he's talking about rather than the children, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. He doesn't hold back, does he, Jesus, when he makes these points. Woe to the well because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, uh, causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? 
if a man owns 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look after the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two, or, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked the Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe to me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged. And when they told their master everything that happened, then, the master, uh, then they told the master everything that happened, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Okay, so whole of the chapter 18 there. Now, it might sound like there's bits and pieces in all of that, and you're wondering how it links together, which is basically what I was doing. But having spent the last few days just thinking about this and, and praying to it, you can see actually there's a whole theme through this chapter that, that Matthew is, is taking us on this journey. And so we're going to look at that, and um, really it's it. we're talking about the upside-down kingdom. And so we're talking about Jesus is the king we need, but actually everything he does is, is almost the opposite to the world. It's what we think naturally with Jesus, it's often the other way around. And so Joe alluded to that a bit last week. And so this week, we're looking at upside-down relationships, relationships between us and God, relationships within the church. Um, and so I've sort of made three points out of this uh, that I think is coming out of the passage. And so number one is become nothing, not something, to have a relationship with Jesus. And so we'll look into that a bit more. And then number two, love is a choice, not a feeling. Um, again, goes against the, the world's ideas of love. And then number three, forgiving others lets us off the hook. And so I sort of say that to slightly intrigue you, and you think, okay, what does that mean? That sounds a bit backwards, doesn't it? But actually, let's, let's have a look at it. So we'll go through each sort of passage there that we've just read and, uh, and draw out some of these themes as we do it. And so 
I'll read through them again as we go. And so it begins with the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples ask, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus calls a, a child to him. Now, sometimes we have to do a little bit of a cross-cultural translation of what goes on there. When we think about a child, we think about this wonderful, precious child that must be protected at all costs and looked after and you know, have all of their rights taken care of. But that wasn't what was going on in the Greco-Roman world. Um, a child was you know, basically like a slave uh, to all extents and, and purposes. It's, a child was, was kind of nothing in society. You know, you, a lot of them would have died before they'd have reached adulthood. Uh, a lot of them would have been into slavery in some way because you know, that's how things worked in that society. And so when Jesus gets hold of a child and brings him in and, and kind of stands him or her um, in the middle of, of all of them and says, yeah, just if you, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, become like this. And so what he's really referring to here is he's talking about the status of a servant. He's talking about the status of, of someone who has no status. And so that's the, the kingdom that Jesus invites us into. And Jesus sets that example himself. He, he comes into the world as a baby in a manger. He comes into the world in a poor family. He doesn't come as a triumphant king, but actually he announces himself. And so the God of eternity, and we read this in Philippians 2, the kind of person that Jesus was, that's who he calls us to be. And so he comes and sets the example and lives it out, but then calls us to be the same. And so in, in Philippians 2, which is a, a small book in the New Testament, uh, Paul says this, who wrote it, it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any com common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so this is where he's going with it. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so what Jesus is doing is here, he is, he's, he's setting the example by doing it, but he's also calling those of us that would come and follow him to flip the world's idea of what it is to be great. And so you think about it, what does it mean to be great in the world? What happens when you have an encounter with someone, you meet them, you, one of the first questions you ask someone if you're in kind of British chit-chat what would you say if you're just showing an interest in someone? Think about some of the questions. What do you do? What do you do? What is your job? You know, how important are you? Just so I know who I'm talking to. That's really what I'm saying. Just how important are you? I don't know if we're just showing interest as well, but, but there's something in that in certain circles. You know, it's like the job you do is, that's important, isn't it? Might be where do you live? Maybe, you know, are you married? Have you, how many children have you got? What team do you support? Yeah. It's like, you know, I, my team's doing badly at the moment, so I'm not going to be talking about them this morning, and we're just going to keep that quiet. And, but actually, if I was supporting Liverpool or Man City at the moment, maybe I'd be shouting about it, because I'd have status, because they're top of the league, even though I, I've done nothing to contribute to that. But this is what happens, isn't it, in our world, is that we think the people who are at the top are the greatest and the most important. You know, so even sometimes, just saying that we met someone or saw someone or know someone who's famous 
we can take some kind of status out of that. You know, it might be that, oh, King Charles walked past me and I think he looked at me and it's like, look how special I am, or whatever it is. But you see that, that feeling that comes, doesn't it, is that, that we love status and we love importance. And, and Jesus is kind of squashing that. Now, of course, he's, he's talking to his disciples, but he's also got the religious leaders there in the background. They're listening in on that and that's the culture that they're in. And so they're talking about our religious importance. And so Jesus often has a bit of a go at the Pharisees because they dress themselves up well, they wear their big robes, and um, they they walk around looking very holy, and he talks about standing on the street corner praying and fasting and sort of sucking in their cheeks to show how holy they are, and things like this. And it's all about status. And so Jesus is flipping it on its head and saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to, to follow him? The king that we need, the king that we follow... He died on a cross. He lived to his early 30s. He had a three-year ministry. He had no money. He had no place to lay his head. That's who we worship. It's like he came in all that humility. And so there's something for us, I think, to take out this this morning, that what are you making your status? Is it that that you're you're a follower of Jesus and, and that's enough? The king of the universe loves you and knows you. Or are you thinking about the next house you're going to buy? Or the next promotion you're going to get? Or what your family's going to like? Or all the different things that might give you some kind of status in society? Or are you able to look at Jesus and say, no, no, I, I, just fo- I follow him. And I will give up all of that stuff in order to be like him. It's interesting because in the next chapter, he gets this rich ruler comes and comes along and tells him how well he's done at keeping the commandments, you know, because that was a big deal if you were a holy man. And he says, okay, that's brilliant. Well done. What else do you need to do? Well, just sell everything and follow me. And he goes away sad because what he's saying, I don't want to give up that state. I, I will be obedient. I'll do all the right things and I'll be a good person. But don't ask me to give up my status. It's, it's too expensive. And I... And I, I feel really challenged by this. I have, a, I have a pretty nice life. I have a good job. I have a nice house. I have lots of good things. And I feel the challenge in this of going, what if Jesus just wants me to give it all up? And I know there's practical arguments in all of that, and you've got family to feed and all of that, and you can get, you can get lost in those things. But, but how tightly am I holding to those things? Is it those things that give me security? Or is it that I'm a child of God and that he's got my back, that he knows everything that's going to happen to me? And if he asked me to give it all up, it'll only be because he's got something better for me on the other side. There's something so comforting about that. And I have had times in life where I've made those steps and I've given up things that I've really wanted. And God has always, always, always come through. And yet I still find myself clinging to things. I think, oh, I'd love to build that extension and have an extra bedroom and a nicer bathroom and all that. And... And I'm not saying those things in and of themselves are wrong. And God does bless people in, in ways and he gives us good things for us to use and to share. And we love having people to our house and, and doing that. But what I'm saying is you can cling to those things and you use those other arguments to justify, well, yeah, God wants me to have that thing. And sometimes he does. And that's good. But he also wants to hold things very lightly. And actually when we come to him like a child, we say, no, I want to be the servant of all. And I think where it really comes down is how do you react when someone treats you like a servant? 
What do you do when, when somebody just dismisses you or ignores what you've contributed or basically speaks down to you? How do you deal with other people who are technically servants? Maybe when you go out for a meal in a restaurant, how do you speak to the staff? Or when you buy something from a shop, how do you deal with the person at the counter? Because there's status going on in all of these things. And in our society, that's always happening. Do you care for the people that are serving you? Or do you think, oh, no, I'm the one with the I'm, the... I'm the customer here. Do you know my customer rights? How uppity do you get on the phone when things go wrong? Do you take out your status anxiety on the person on the other end of the phone who's just doing a menial job because that might be all they can get at the moment? So I'm trying to get into your hearts a little bit. Is this working? Um, just, I can see a few nodding heads, which is always a good sign. But this is what Jesus is getting at, because you've got all the religious people, and they're waiting for the big religious man, Jesus, who they're lifting him up, they're elevating him, because he's doing all these amazing things. And, and then he's just trying to dismantle all of their arguments and ideas about what it means to be important. And what he's saying is, actually, it doesn't mean anything to be important. What matters is, is that you are a child of the living God. And that's what it takes to become a Christian, actually, is to go, do you know what? I am nothing in the nicest sense of the word. I'm a sinner. I hated God. I didn't want him to tell me what to do or how to live my life. And I needed him to come and die on a cross to pay for my sin because there was nothing good in me to make myself righteous before a holy God. And so there is a humility that has to happen in order for you to even become a Christian because the first thing we do is we repent and say, God, I am sorry for the way I've lived my life. I'm sorry that I have not made the most wonderful, beautiful thing in all creation my life's goal, which is to follow you, to worship you, and to submit my life to you, Jesus. Because that's what we should do. If Jesus was in the room right now, I guarantee we would all be on the floor in tears feeling the weight of our sin in comparison to his glory. And so he says, come to me like this. Come on your face, crawl in, and say, have mercy on me, God. I'm nothing. That's hard because our culture says, no, you should be true to yourself, and you know, you should... What's it called? Oprah Winfreyism. And it's like, you know, speak your truth, be yourself, own yourself. And it's that. And it's like, just take away all that rubbish. Don't be true to yourself. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful, that we have a problem with our heart that is, is only fixed by submitting ourselves to Jesus and then giving us a new heart. So being true to yourself is not a good thing. It's as nice as it sounds. Actually, you know, get under the word of God, the truth of Scripture. And allow that to challenge the desires of your heart. And so he goes on to talk about sin. And so let me move on in the passage because we'll be here all day otherwise. Um, and so in the next bit in verse 6, if anyone causes... Let's check I haven't missed anything there. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of these things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. I mean, Judas is standing there while he's saying this. He's later going to betray him. And it says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. 
It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. And it's like, is Jesus using hyperbole here? Is he exaggerating it? Maybe, but maybe he's not. Because he's actually saying, <laughs> you know, would you rather be in heaven with one arm or in hell with two? Because if your arm's causing you to cut it off. And so he is making a point with exaggeration, but there's also truth in it as well. And so our sin matters. How we live our lives matter. But first we come to Jesus and recognize that actually our sin has separated us from God. And that we need him to make that right. We can't make it right by being good people. But then as we go through that, we realize that actually our relationship with God is also affected by that. And so the way that we live, the choices that we make, the way that we treat other people, all of those things, they don't affect our salvation. If you are a Christian, it is by grace alone, and by faith alone, in grace, in grace alone, no, grace alone, by faith alone. Ephesians 2. <laughs> we have been saved by faith. <laughs> and it's by the grace of God. And what that means is, is that it is a free gift of God. He gives us this new heart because he loves us. But then out of that, our sinful desires, he says to us, no, just cut those things off. What are the things in your life that draw you away from Jesus? What are the temptations in life? Because the world will tempt us. The world will offer us things and say, no, have this. Have this status. Look how good it is. It goes right back to the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Adam and Eve and said, no. God says, no, you're, my, you're made in my image. You're like me. I'm going to give you authority and there's just one thing not to do. And Satan comes and says, no, no, do that thing and you'll be like God. There's always that temptation that we can get or think we can get what we need by following what the world goes after. And so he calls us away from those things and, and, and addresses our sins. He says, no, take it seriously. And actually when you do that and when, you, when you're ruthless about the things, what are the things that tempt you? Are you ruthless in how you get rid of them out of your life? Because that's what he's saying. I know there's been things in my life that I've really struggled with. And, and actually, in the end, I've had to be quite ruthless about relationships or um, things that I have in the house or, or how I use my time in, in order to cut those things off. So what are, the, what are the difficulties in your life? The things that lead you away from Jesus? Because that's what sin does. It leads you away from Jesus and towards yourself. And actually, becoming holy is not a burdensome thing. It's the best thing giving up sin and going, oh, I hate that, but I love Jesus. It brings you joy and happiness and delight and peace and helps you in your relationships with others. And so it's not, a, it's not a bad thing to say, no, don't do those things. Those things are the things that ruin your life. And so Jesus says, no, cut those things off and come and follow me. And if you've got status and importance and power and things like that, so just use those things to glorify me. But the other thing is you might be saying, well, who am I? And Jesus says earlier on in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Actually, that's what he calls us to be, is to be poor in spirit. If you're sitting here and thinking, well, I don't have anything, I'm nothing. You're in a good place, because that is a great place to start to come to Jesus, because such is the kingdom of heaven filled with people like you. And so whether you're up there or down there, we, we, we both need to come to the same place and recognize that actually we just need to worship Jesus. 
We just need to lay our lives down and say, look, I don't have anything anyway, God. I've got nothing to offer you, even if I've got everything. So that's his sort of encouragement, if you like, to enter the kingdom of God is to give up the things of this world. So he invites all of us to come to him in that way today. But then he goes on, and the next point I've talked about is is love is not a feeling, um, but it's what we do. I can't remember how I phrased it because I've lost it there. Love is a choice, not a feeling. And so he goes on to talk about other people, and he begins with the parable of the wandering sheep, and he says in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. It's a bit of an unusual phrase there, but he's basically saying that there are angels in heaven, and they're messengers of God, and they, they see God face to face all the time. There's a relationship to be had in heaven, but we won't explore that today. But he says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 in the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little sheep, little ones should perish. So he goes on to say that God will come after us. And there's an encouragement here. This is a slightly different parable in Luke when he talks about the lost sheep being those that don't know God. But actually he's saying here about sheep that have gone astray. So they're not so much lost, but they're wandering off. And there is an encouragement in here, both for us if we've gone astray, God is on your case. He's coming after you. The fact that you're here today is a really good thing because God knew you would be because he's chasing after you. He wants you back in here. He wants you back in the fold. But for those of us that are here... Once upon a time, we were all the one. It's not that God doesn't care about the 99. It's, we were all the one once. And he was delighted in each one of us when he drew us back in. And we've all wandered and we've all been astray. But actually, I think there's something here for us. We deal with ourselves and our own sin and everything else. But actually, what about the rest of the church? What about those people that have wandered off? Who are the, the wandering sheep that aren't here today? I think there's a real encouragement in here for the church it's comfortable to be with the 99. This is where I got to myself. I love being around my Christian brothers and sisters. But I know there are people that have wandered off. I think, do you know what? I feel God is challenging us to, to go and seek and save the lost, seek and save the ones that have wandered. And I feel God will lay people's names on your heart this morning as I'm saying this. If people, you think, oh, actually, I haven't seen them for a while. I wonder how they're doing. And it's getting out of our comfort zone and it's making that choice and going, do you know what, maybe they're not the easiest person to hang out with. Maybe they've got some sin in their life that needs addressing. And that's why they're not around or you haven't seen them for a while or, or you may be a bit reticent to go after them. I feel God would give us a chance today to, to chase some of these people down a bit and see how they're doing. And he gives us instruction on how to do it. And it says, if, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. This is hard. I find it so easy to point out other people's sin with someone else where we can agree to get, yeah, they're really bad. Oh, man, that person sucks, don't they? Yeah, yeah, I feel really good because you're agreeing with me. What about the, the person there that, whose sin we're talking about? I think it's so easy to gossip, isn't it? And we can even do it in a Christian way. I really feel we should pray for Brian. You know, he's really struggling with all that sin at the moment. Let's just pray together about it. It's like, well, have you spoken to Brian about it? Or are you going to go and pray with everyone first and tell everyone else about it? There is no Brian, just to be clear. Well, I mean, there are Brians, but not here. Um, so you get the point. It's so easy, isn't it? It's like, oh, man, this, that person's so annoying. I, I think there's some real integrity in keeping those thoughts to ourselves. 
and going after those people and saying, do you know what, I just want to spend some time with you. And, and the way he says, says to do is he says, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they're not listened, take one or two others along. So it's not involving everyone, but saying, look, I've, maybe I need another mature Christian to come in, and maybe that's the point, to say, look, I have spoken to them about it, I haven't done anything. There's some real wisdom in this, in, in how to just address some stuff. And it's a bit hard work. And I think that's why we don't do it, because it's easier just to talk about people than to actually go after them. I felt a real conviction in this as I was sort of putting it together. And, and it says, if they still refuse to listen, well, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. There's something in the end, once you've gone through that process again, do you know what, I'm, I'm going to treat you like an unbeliever now. And so instead of trying to pastor you and shepherd you, I'm going to evangelize to you. Because there's a different way to how we treat people in the church, to how we pe- treat people outside the church. And someone might say they're a Christian, but actually they're just walking in all kinds of sin. It's like actually what they need to hear is the gospel. They don't need you to lecture them about their sin because it's clear that their relationship with God is, is so fractured or not there that they don't care about that. And so what they need to hear is the gospel, that God loves them, that God cares for them, that God wants them, that if they came back to church, they'd be welcome because church is full of people like that because that's all of us. And so if you're here this morning thinking, well, you don't know what I've done, it's like, well, I almost guarantee it's probably not as bad as what I've done because <laughs> I know what I've done and it's bad. But God loves me and he changed me and he rescued me and he forgave me. So there's something really healthy in this about how we do it. And then he says, truly I tell you, this is verse 18, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I don't think it's talking about us going, well, and I'm going to bind in the name of Jesus this person now and you're going to go to hell. It's, it's not that. What he's actually saying is, is no, come on, you're, you're the church. You're my representatives. You're my hands and feet. If, if you see someone who needs rescuing, go and rescue them. And I'm with you on it. That's what Jesus is saying come on, let's do this together. Let's go and fight Satan. It's him that's going to be bound. Yeah, the enemy is not people. The enemy is not flesh and blood. It's powers and principalities. It says that in Ephesians 6. And so he's given us authority to go after people in order to rescue them. That's what he's getting at here. It's like, come on, I'm going to be with you in this. My spirit is with you. And so maybe there are people that that you need to go after. Maybe there are people you know. And you might think, maybe I'm not ready for that. And sometimes when we're struggling with our own sin, that's not a good time to be going out and telling other people their fault. Jesus says, actually, first remove the plank from your own eye in order to get the teeny tiny speck out of your brother's eye. People with planks are terrible at removing specks because the plank gets in the way. And it's like, he's, again, he's exaggerating the point. But that's what it's like, isn't it? Have you ever had it when someone comes up to you and says, Look, I really need to talk to you about this issue? And the person who's in front of you are like, flipping heck, you're going to talk to me about this? <laughs> now, there's some humility needed sometimes. Go, actually, hearing our critics is not a bad thing. And, and not just going, well, just because that person's an idiot, I'm not going to listen to them. Actually, there's often truth in what idiots say because they're the only ones bold enough and stupid enough to say it. And so make the most of those opportunities. Don't start talking. You know, it, it's often happens. I mean, it happens in marriage. I won't go into too much detail, but <laughs> we... I'm not calling Catherine an idiot either. I'm, I'm, I'm the idiot with the plank. That's why I'm saying these things. But I will, perhaps Catherine will maybe challenge me on some behavior that, you know, that isn't quite up to scratch. And my first instinct is to go, well, you, let me tell you what you've done first. 
and you get this tit for tat, rather than going, do you know what, thank you for pointing that out, I'm sorry that I'm such a pain in the backside to you. You get that, it's relationships, but that happens in the world as well, doesn't it? People come and challenge us. So there's some really just good stuff here that God is, is, is doing. Oh dear, I've just lost my whole preach. Um, there we go. And, uh, but then he gets to the end of the passage, and he tells us this parable. And I've said, forgiving others lets us off the hook. And I think forgiveness is such a big issue because what he's going into here is when he tells the same story in Luke and, and he talks about repentance and talks about forgiveness and about people saying sorry and repenting and going, oh, I want to change. I don't want to be like that anymore. And then they sin against you again. And you're like, how many times can I put up with this person? And it's the same all the time, but you'll have people in your life who are like, this person's just never going to change. And I keep trying. I keep trying to show them grace and love. And so... The Pharisees had a rule, it's like three strikes and you're out. And so Peter, you know, being Peter, he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to more than double it. Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? And Jesus goes, no, no, not seven. Seven times 70. And what he's doing is he's referring back to a guy called Lamech in the Old Testament who was a descendant of Cain, who was a baddie. And, um, and Lamech basically, God says that I'll have vengeance on anyone who hurts Cain seven times. So Lamech says, I'll have it seven times 70, anyone who attacks Lamech, you know. And so he's talking about vengeance. And so Jesus is flipping that and basically saying, no, don't have unlimited vengeance, have unlimited forgiveness. And we all do this. I always think about when you drive and you get the person comes rushing up on the outside to overtake everyone because they don't want to queue. And you see them coming in your wing mirror and you just put your accelerator down just to close that gap so that they get squashed out and they get left in this really precarious position. Anyone done that? Is it just me? <laughs> Confessing it. And you feel really smug and proud about your you know, righteousness and how you've you know, taught that person a lesson. And I always think, what if that person had a dying child in the back of their car and they were just desperate to get to a hospital? We do not have the knowledge of God to make righteous judgments over people's sin. And so we need to be really careful about how we judge people and how much vengeance we choose to take out. But Jesus says, no, no, don't, don't avenge your enemies. Vengeance is mine, says God. But actually he says, no, forgive your enemies, love your enemies. Do good to those who do evil to you. And so that is the message, isn't it, of Christianity. And Jesus set that example when he died on the cross for every single person in this room. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so as we finish, I just want to play a little video really on forgiveness. And, and it's Cory Ten Boom, and it's from the Alpha Course. They play this little extract. And um, I won't hit it just yet. I, just, I kind of want to say up front in this that forgiveness is so hard because people do such evil things to each other. And so I don't want to presume for a minute that anyone in here thinks that forgiveness is easy. It's not. And, and she addresses this in, in what she says. And, and yet Jesus calls us to it. And so in this parable, what he's saying is, is that he says this guy owes 10,000 talents. It says bags of gold there. But a talent is the most expensive unit of currency. And 10,000 is the highest Roman numeral they had. So it's like he owes an unlimited debt. And that's what our debt to God is like, because we can't pay it off. 
And so the only way you can forgive is to know that you've been completely forgiven of a much bigger debt, which is the murder of the creator of the universe. And so it's not until we come face to face with that reality that we can deal with the forgiveness of other people in our lives. And so it is impossible, and she's going to say this in the video, but I know that there will be people here that have been grossly sinned against. You'll have had things done to you, and, and people will have betrayed you, usually those closest to you. And it is not to make any of that sound like that's easy. It's not. It's impossible. But there is something utterly incredible about God's forgiveness that sets us free to forgive others, which is why I say forgiveness is actually about letting us off the hook. Because when we harbor unforgiveness, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get ill from it. And so Jesus wants us to forgive because it sets us free. It's the best thing for us. It might be the best thing for that other person as well. And there's lots of things around forgiveness that it doesn't mean you can restore the relationship or anything like that. Sometimes those things can't happen. But what it means is, is it takes the weight and the judgment off what that person did out of your heart and gives it to God to deal with it fairly and justly. It's not letting them off. God will deal with them. And so I just say that up front. And so we can listen to this, and then we're just going to come and, and pray, really. And, and I feel God's just going to speak to us through it. But hopefully this video works. I've got it running through my, uh, running through my mobile over there. Gonna see if he can. Ooh, Ed's gonna see if he can get that going. I was trying to link to YouTube, and this was late last night, and so it was a bit of a risky one. But um, basically, Corrie Ten Boom, she um, was a Holocaust survivor, and her family were murdered by uh, the Nazis. And um, she was a Christian, and she loved God, and, and she took her whole experience. Um, I think it was Ravensbrück was the, the place she was tortured on, and. And everything. Always a young child, and but she took that experience and used it as a way to tell people about Jesus and how good he was in her life. And one day she was speaking, um, I think, in a, in a church, and one of the guards um, came towards her, who had been in the thing. He'd become a Christian, and um, and she saw him coming, and he didn't know who she was. She knew he knew that she'd been a survivor, but he she recognised him. And he was one of the guards that had tortured and abused her family and probably her. And it's just this most powerful testimony because she looked at him and she knew that Christ called her to forgive him. And he came up and said, I, I prayed to God, I became a Christian, and I asked God to give me a chance to be forgiven by one of my victims. And, and she looked at him and said, I just couldn't. And then she says, but, but Christ could. And she says, I think I wrote down these words in case this video didn't work, so it might be too late to get it going now. But she basically says, you've never so touched the ocean of God's love as when you forgive your enemies. And what she was getting at is that Christ on the cross, he forgave his enemies. And when we do that, when, and we only do that through him, when we recognize our forgiveness, 
He empowers us to do that and sets us free from that stronghold that we can have over our lives. And it's actually to be like Jesus is to do that. And so it actually draws us closer to him. And so she did it and she said she reached out her hand and shook his hand and said, I forgive you. And she just felt the presence of God flow right through her. It was the most powerful moment. And well, if you want to see it, come on an Alpha course. <laughs> Week three, it will be there. Don't worry about it now, guys, because we're going to end. But I'm going to pray. Maybe, uh, Pete, if you could come back up and just play. Um, I'd love just to pray into these things. Some of it, I just feel what God was doing in the me- meeting in the morning. He's working in people's hearts. He's bringing healing. And, and this stuff is hard. And, and we want to build a church. We want to be like Jesus. First, we have to let him work in us before we can then go out and, and help others. And, uh, and he does. He does do that. And so why don't you stand with me? I'm just going to pray for us. And wherever you're at this morning, whatever God's spoken to you about, I'm just going to pray that God works that through in your heart. And just maybe if you want to, shut your eyes. If you're comfortable doing that, maybe just even put your hands out in front. And just, just to say, look, God, I'm open. I'm open to your power in my life. I'm open to your presence. I'm open to Jesus. Father God, I pray for us this morning. Thank you that you're speaking. Thank you that you're at work. Thank you that you love to build great relationships in your church. That You start by building a relationship with us. You seek and save the lost. Lord, that no one is beyond the reach of your salvation. Lord, we want, we want to be like you. We want to know you. We want to love you. We want to live like you. We want to be holy. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. Lord, will you come and meet with them now by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for those that are mourning and need comfort. I pray will you come and comfort. I pray for those that are struggling with sin. Lord, will you come and bring just a sense of holiness over them, a desire to do what pleases you. Lord, I pray for broken relationships, Lord. I pray will you give people the boldness to take the first step to forgive. Or maybe to challenge, Lord. If we do challenge, will you give us the wisdom to do it well, compassionately, without judgment, but in order to go and save a brother or a sister. Lord, help us to share the gospel with those that don't know you, Lord. It is the power unto salvation for those who believe. Lord, it's the keys of the kingdom of heaven that you gave Peter. It's the wonderful message of the gospel that Jesus so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, thank you for eternal life. Lord, we long for that day when you return and we we want to stand there in the judgment knowing that you saved us. So I pray for everyone this morning here, Lord, will you bring salvation to this place, Lord? Will you give people new hearts? Will you take out hearts of stone, Lord? Will you bring healing? Will you bring repentance, Lord? I'm sorry for my sin. Help us to trust you, Lord. Help us not to build our houses in sand, but on the rock of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, come and meet with us now as we worship you, Lord. We want to lift your name high because you alone are worthy of our praise. Amen.